naszego specjalnego gościa, profesora Kenneta Walteja. Na plakacie trochę było napisane informacje na temat pana profesora. Mam pytanie takie techniczne. Kto potrzebuje tłumaczenia z języka angielskiego? Proszę, może ręka do góry. Okay. A kto nie potrzebuje? No, kilka osób potrzebuje, więc na razie tłumaczenie będzie. Ja może w takim razie powiem, co, czego na plakacie nie było. Mianowicie właśnie profesor Kenneth Barclay, owszem, znany jest w środowisku osób, które interesują się filozofią Indii w Polsce. Natomiast dopiero od kilkunastu lat jest, no, nie, nie wiem dokładnie, ale na pewno nie, na pewno nie, nie przez całe życie jest um, nauczycielem, znanym nauczycielem akademickim w tej chwili. A, pół roku spędza w Hongkongu na Uniwersytecie Chińskim. Tam przez jakiś czas był szefem katedry, która się zajmuje religiami i kulturą Azji Południowej. W tej chwili tam jest wizytującym profesorem, ponieważ również wykłada w Europie i to w kilku miejscach, między innymi w University of Pula. Na Uniwersytecie Pula. W Chorwacji, na Uniwersytecie w Puli. Oraz, co jest ważne, jest członkiem zespołów Oxford Center for Hindu Studies. To jest jedna z niewielu takich dużych jednostek na, na świecie, która zajmuje się szczególnie hinduizmem, ponieważ społeczność hinduska w, w Anglii jest, jest bardzo spora, dosyć silna. To, to tyle, może ja za dużo już nie będę mówić. Zatem dzisiejszy wykład, dzisiejszy wykład związany jest z globalizacją i jak w stosunku do czy też globalizacji a religii wschodu. Natomiast zapraszam również na wykład, który będzie w sobotę o godzinie 15.30, piętro niżej w sali 03. Także zapraszam. Ok. So, <coughs> so am I using this or is our translate? <coughs> Translation. Okay. Are you gonna? You don't have to stand unless you want. To. <laughs> um, so thank you all for coming on this warm June day. This is like a Southern California day. I'm from Southern California myself. Dziękuję państwu za przybycie w tym ciepły dzień, który przypomina taki dzień. <coughs> My apologies for not speaking Polish. <laughs> uh, but fortunately, we have expert translation. <laughs> Don't be shy. <laughs> um, Okay, what is our topic? Globalization and Eastern religions. So the first question might be why should we talk about 
these two in connection with each other. Więc nasz dzisiejszy temat to globalizacja a religie wschodu. Więc pierwsze pytanie można zadać, dlaczego y, wiążemy te, te dwa tematy i chcemy o nich mówić razem? Um, of course, to say Eastern religions is to make a huge generalization. There are many, many, many varieties of religion in Asia. Oczywiście mówiąc o, o religiach wschodu jest to takie e, duże uogólnienie, ponieważ w Azji jest e, wiele odmian, czyli rodzajów religii. But one reason I think that's implied in having such a theme is that Eastern religion, Asian religions seem perhaps to be in some way totally opposed to the ideology of globalization. Ale jednym z powodów dla tego tematu jest to, że, że religie Azji czy te religie, one wydają się mieć taką, takie przeciwstawne koncepcje do globalizacji. Um, and yet in reality we see a lot of what I'm going to call accommodation or acceptance uh, of the practical aspects of globalization by people who are would see themselves as in some ways traditional practitioners of some religion. I będę też mówił o czymś, co można nazwać, nazwać takim mm. praktycznym Third. przystosowaniem się ludzi, którzy, którzy praktykują, tak? Którzy zajmują się to deal with globalization um, people practice traditional religion, they still accept a lot of what we see as globalization. Ludzie, którzy praktykują te religie wschodu, oni pomimo tego przyjmują dużo z tej globalizacji. Um, yes, they accept, but also we see um, different ways of what I'm going to call resistance to globalization. Więc oni akceptują tą globalizację, ale też na, na wielu poziomach pojawia się pewien opór. Um, and there's a third principle. We have acceptance, resistance, and what I'm sort of calling agency, or uh, the force of expanding or making globalization happen through religious traditions. So, what I thought I'll do, because this is a huge topic, how to sort of concentrate things in a short time, uh, is first I'll give a little definition of globalization that I sort of like, then I will talk about uh, two different types of resistance aside from religion, resistance to globalization. And then I'm going to talk about Hinduism and then Buddhism uh, with respect to all of this. Ponieważ jest to taki szeroki temat, a czasu jest, jest to mały przedział czasu, więc najpierw będę mówił o, o globalizacji, podam taką swoją ulubioną definicję globalizacji. 
Potem będę mówił o dwóch rodzajach oporu, czy przeciwstawienia się. Potem będę mówił o hinduizmie, który przeciwstawia się globalizacji, przeciwieństwie do globalizacji. Are you ready for a definition of globalization? <laughs> okay, here we go. The widening. <coughs> Let's go by uh, sort of s step by step. The widening. The deepening. And the speeding up of worldwide interconnectedness. <laughs> in all aspects of contemporary social life. From the cultural to the criminal. From the financial to the spiritual. Got that? <laughs> okay. That was. Anyway, everybody who studies globalization, the first thing they like to do is make a definition of it. And I think a general idea we can get from this we can imagine a balloon um, that's. Um, blown up but then you let the air out the balloon shrinks so everything on the surface of the balloon comes closer together and everything is affected, as said here, cult from cultural to criminal, uh, from financial to, to spiritual. Now, if we had more time, I would go into discussion of globalization ideology. People who say, Globaliza globalization as it's taking place today is a very good thing. But there's no time. <laughs> so instead I'm going to just say a word or two about people who say globalization is not a good thing. And uh, so here we're talking about resistance, different kinds of, you know, naysaying, saying something is wrong with globalization. Yeah, <coughs> talk. So, first of all, we have, well, both of these are types of protectionism. Where the idea is something is threatened by globalization and that something has to be protected. 
globalizacja czemuś zagraża i coś należy chronić. So one scholar has has differentiated between particularist protectionism and universalist protectionism. Więc jeden taki naukowiec, naukowiec, przepraszam, on rozróżnił pomiędzy takim szczegółowym protekcjonizmem i takim ogólnym czy uniwersalnym. This is scholars thrive on creating new tech, uh, terminology. That's part of our bread and butter. Probably, if you think about these two terms with respect to Polish culture and politics, you'll find both aspects expressed in different, from different people in the society. Culture, whatever. So, the particularist protectionism usually manifests in the form of nationalism, that we have to preserve our national identity against global identity. And another aspect of particularist protectionism, there's often a sense that what's being threatened is more moral values, and these need to be protected. I'm giving a hard time to our translator. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Universalist protectionism. Um, there's a, a, a desire to seek a more equal relationship between the global north and the global south. Global North, Global South, to make them more equal. Because critics of global globalization have noticed that it's very much the Global North which is profiting from the whole process. Uh, at the expense of the global south. And then there's a concern for things which um, probably all of us would share some concern for. Environmental protection, fair trade. Niepokoje, które my również dzielimy, takie jak ochrona środowiska, 
human rights, women's issues, uh, and there's also a concern to promote what they call globalization from below as opposed to from above. Yeah, so this is all classified as universal protectionism, and I'm mentioning this, these in advance so that we can think about these in relation to some aspects of Hinduism and Buddhism. Więc teraz właśnie powiedziałam o tym uniwersalnym protekcjonizmie, tak abyśmy mogli odnieść się potem do tego, kiedy będę mówił o hinduizmie i buddyzmie. Now we're going to talk a little about Hinduism, and for this I'm going to go way back in time to begin. Teraz będę mówił o hinduizmie i właśnie w tym celu cofnę się daleko w czasie. And of course. This is a little difficult because um, ideally we, w- we would all be rather familiar with um, important features of Hinduism and then Buddhism, but perhaps we are not so familiar. But we won't worry about that. (laughs) Uh, Also, if we had more time, I would be showing you pictures, and this would make everything much more fun. So my apologies um, for you just having to listen to me. (laughs) Uh, one picture, one photo I would uh, maybe start out showing you is of a place you may be uh, familiar with, Angkor Wat in Cambodia. Angkor Wat. Anyone has heard of Angkor Wat? No. It's a huge temple. You've heard. You know. I've been there. You've been there. <laughs> He's been there. I don't feel on this place, but I was in Cambodia. Oh. You went to Cambodia and you didn't go to Angkor <laughs> Angkor Wat is a huge temple uh, which was built in, oh, in the Middle Ages originally. I, I can't remember exactly when originally. And it, it was basically a Hindu t- king who established this place. My point being that Hinduism, which we associate very much with, uh, with India, from early centuries of the common era became spread to, uh, well, to Indonesia, all all across South Asia, all the way through Indonesia. Więc chodzi mi o to, że ten hinduizm, który tak właśnie 
No, I forgot. Uh, <laughs> Hinduism has been spread from, from India all the way through South Asia, including Indonesia. Indonesia, yes. Um, one imp- uh, significant marker of the presence of Hinduism in Southeast Asia is a particular book. It is called the Ramayana. Some will say that the Ramayana is the most important epic poem in world literature. Niektórzy mówią, że Ramayana jest jednym z najważniejszych epickich poematów w literaturze. It's a very sad story about a king whose wife, the king is Rama, his wife is Sita. Uh, Sita becomes um, kidnapped from Rama. To jest bardzo smutna historia o królu Ramie i jego żonie Sicie. I Sita zostaje porwana przez Ravanę. And yes, Pshas Ravana, exactly. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, so I won't go into the details of the story, but my point here is that this story uh, takes on local versions wherever it goes, all the way into Indonesia, where to this day it is performed uh, with shadow puppets and again if we had time i would show you pictures of ramayana shadow puppets i gdziekolwiek ta ramayana jest wystawiana tam pojawiają się takie właśnie lokalne wersje i w indonezji tak jest taka wersja kukiełkowa wersja z cieniami now i mentioned rama this uh, king, he was considered to be an ideal king in every respect. Uh, all of his citizens were happy beyond compare under his rule. And after 14 years of exile to the forest, when he finally returns, with his wife Sita, he returns to his capital Ayodhya in great triumph, and everyone is very happy. I po 14 latach wygnania, kiedy wraca do swojego miasta Ayodhya wraz z swoją żoną, wszyscy są bardzo szczęśliwi. And his kingdom is to this day celebrated as Ram Raja, the kingdom of Ram, the the ideal. Um, it's the picture of an ideal kingdom where everything works right. <laughs> well, I'll get back to this uh, very soon, but uh, I just mentioned this for the time being because 
what we'll see is this is going to lead to what we might call a conflict between two worldviews concerning globalization. Wspomniałem to teraz, ale wrócimy do tego jeszcze. Wspomniałem to dlatego, że wkrótce może się pojawić pewien konflikt pomiędzy tym, co teraz powiedziałem, a, a tą koncepcją globalizmu. And that conflict begins about a thousand or eleven hundred years ago with um, invasions coming from the northwest of India, what is now Afghanistan, of um, warriors who are, who are of the Islamic persuasion. And there are conflicts about a thousand years ago takimi inwazjami na, na północno-zachodnie wybrzeże India, wybrzeże Indii, to Afghanistan. byli, przepraszam, Afganistanu i to byli najeźdźcy pochodzenia islamskiego. And over the next few hundred years uh, Islam uh, basically dominated most of India um, up to the time of British colonialism in the 18th century. Now, you may be familiar with early history of Islam. It was very much oriented toward expansion. Być może znacie e, tą wczesną historię islamu. Ona była bardzo nastawiona na, e, na, tak, na rozszerzanie siebie czy ekspansję. And here one might speak of a kind of Islamic globalization effort starting from yes, the, the 10th century. I można też mówić o takiej islamskiej Actually earlier, 8th century. E, islamskiej globalizacji, która e, zaczynała się od VIII wieku. Um, whereby we're speaking here of an Abrahamic religious tradition. Uh, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam we would put together as Abrahamic traditions. In all three uh, traditions of which there is a concern about representation of divinity. Now, Hinduism thrives in its uh, worship of images of divinities in temples. Where the Abrahamic traditions have all said one can make no representation of the deity, uh, Hinduism says, why not? And so this is going to become a major source of conflict between two worldviews, again, both of which have a sense that their view should be globalized. 
I tutaj występuje konflikt pomiędzy tymi dwoma światopoglądami i osoby z każdej z tych grup uważają, że ich pogląd powinien być takim globalnym poglądem. Okay, very quickly, then some, um, some British history. <laughs> the British went to India, um, they became more and more dominant of India in the 19th century. And when the British came, they brought Christian, they eventually brought Christian missionaries who decided we have to spread uh, the, the teachings of our understanding throughout the world. And in India, an interesting thing happened. The British brought printing presses. Uh, the British brought printing presses to India. I'm afraid if you close that, we're going to suffocate. Maybe that'll be by in a minute. Um, anyway. <laughs> so, they brought presses, and what did they print? They printed Bibles. Bibles in all the major languages of India. And at the same time, they were training up, they were educating uh, Indians, a, a class of Indians, to become uh, administrators of, of the land for the British. And in doing so, they were making, uh, they were producing a class of people who could read English, uh, who were educated in learning the Bible and uh, English literature. And some of these, uh, they were very attracted to the European culture, and others, they said, no, this is not what we want. I niektórzy z nich byli przyciągnięci do tej zachodniej kultury, a niektórzy powiedzieli, że nie, nie chcemy tego. And so what did they start doing? They started making their own printing presses and printing their own uh, Hindu literature, Sanskrit literature, uh, Bengali, um, Hindi literature of Indian religious traditions and propagating that in the same way the missionaries, the Christian missionaries were doing. Uh, to make a very long story very short, I'm going to jump to the 20th century and talk uh, just a bit about Mahatma Gandhi and Jawaharlal Nehru. Uh, 
Więc teraz, żeby skrócić długą historię, przeskoczę do XX wieku i będę mówił o Mahatma Gandhi i John Mahal Nehru. Like that. <laughs> yes. Gandhi, I'm sure you're all familiar with, more or less. Uh, he came to be known as Mahatma. Mahatma means great soul. <coughs> and he is celebrated as being a major leader, leader of the Indian nationalist movement. And what I want to point to is much of his inspiration for that came from an ancient Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita. Bhagavad Gita literally means the song of God. Bhagavad Gita znaczy dosłownie pieśń Boga. And it's a conversation uh, between Arjuna and Krishna. Krishna is identified as Bhagavan or God, and he is convincing Arjuna to fight in a great battle. I to jest rozmowa między Arjuną i Krishną. I Krishna jest tutaj zidentyfikowany jako Bóg. I Krishna namawia Arjuna, żeby walczył w bitwie. Now the interesting thing is, there are many interesting things. One interesting thing is that uh, Gandhi first read the Bhagavad Gita while he was in England. He read it in, in an English translation. Sorry? Uh, it's a famous translation um, by Edwin Arnold. He was very inspired by that translation. And then he took his understanding of how to apply the teachings of this book with him back to India. To swoje zrozumienie, jak zaaplikować nauki Bhagavad Gita, wziął ze sobą do Indii. Uh, one Austrian scholar who uh, also became um, a Hindu monk uh, called this the pizza effect. Jeden naukowiec z Austrii, który również stał się hinduskim mnichem, nazwał to efektem pizzy. You all know pizza came originally from Italy, right? And then Italian immigrants in America, they developed the recipe of pizza, and eventually it came to San Francisco, and from San Francisco it eventually went back to Italy. Propagować te przepisy pizzy i ona stała się bardzo słynna i również w San Francisco doszła, to była również słynna w San Francisco, w San Francisco i San Francisco wróciła również do Włoch. Um, anyway, uh, the idea is that something goes out of its original place and comes back in a new form. Chodzi o to, że coś wychodzi ze swojego pierwotnego miejsca 
a potem wraca do niego w swojej w nowej formie. But what I want to point out is how Gandhi represents a kind of resistance to globalization. Ja chciałam tu pokazać, że Gandhi reprezentuje pewien opór względem globalizacji. As you may know, um, the much of the economic situation was that cotton from India was being exported to England, where it was being made into cloth in um, English mills, and then coming back to India, where it was being sold to the people. Sytuacja była taka, że bawełna z Indii była transportowana do Anglii. Tam była przerabiana na tkaninę i następnie była znowu transportowana do do Indii i tam była sprzedawana. And of course, it was being sold at a profit. Oczywiście sprzedawana była z zyskiem. So Gandhi said, "What need is there for this? We can produce our own cotton. We can also produce our own cloth." Więc Gandhi powiedział, jaki jest z tego użytek, jeżeli możemy wytworzyć własną bawełnę, to możemy również zrobić własne własne materiały. And there's a famous photograph of Gandhi sitting in prison with his chakkar, which is a a spinning wheel. It's a small hand-operated machine for making cotton thread. I jest takie słynne zdjęcie, na którym Gandhi siedzi za kratkami i ma w ręku tak czakar, czy to jest, to jest taka, to jest takie malutkie, taka maszynka, urządzenie do do przerabiania tej bawełny. And so, in this way, he became a kind of symbol for promotion of back to the village, village self-sufficiency on all levels, economic, political, and so on, cultural, and we can say religious. I w ten sposób on stał się takim liderem, czy zaczął promować taką ekonomiczną samowystarczalność z powrotem, aby wrócić z powrotem do korzeni, do wsi. Ekonomiczną, czy kulturalną samowystarczalność wsi. He actually started more than one alternative community, self-sufficient communities, first in South Africa and then in India. On rozpoczął więcej niż jedną taką alternatywną, samowystarczalną społeczność, jedną w południowej Afryce i drugą i jeszcze inne w Indiach. And it's a long history how he gained momentum as a political force, which eventually people credit him for liberating India from the British in 1947. Now, sadly, as you may also know, Gandhi was shot. He was assassinated soon after Indian independence. Niestety, w taki smutny sposób był 
Gandhi został zastrzelony w zamachu. The irony is that his assassin was a, a Hindu. He was um, what we might call a fundamentalist Hindu uh, who felt that Gandhi was threatening uh, Hindu tradition because of his friendliness with uh, Muslims, with those who follow Islam. I to był taki fundamentalistyczny hindus, który uważał, że Gandhi zagraża hinduizmowi, ponieważ przyjaźni się z ludźmi pochodzenia islamicznego. But I want to contrast uh, Gandhi with Nehru. Nehru uh, became the first prime minister of India. I chciałem teraz taki pokazać kontrast pomiędzy Gandhi a Nehru, to jest uh, on był pierwszy, jak? Dobrze powiedział? Nehru po prostu. On był pierwszym premierem Indii. And Nehru and Gandhi worked very closely together uh, up to the point of independence. I Nehru i Gandhi bardzo blisko ze sobą współpracowali do momentu niezależności. But Nehru's idea of where India should go uh, was very much in terms of secularization and industrialization. He would have nothing to do with Gandhi's idea of back to the village and hand spinning and all these things. Uh, okay. I'm Industri yes, industrialization. Now, one might say that uh, in terms of Indian uh, policy, economic and uh, social policy since Gandhi has been, uh, was killed, <coughs> has pretty much completely dropped all of Gandhi's ideas. Um, it has completely abandoned, left and rejected Gandhi's ideas. <laughs> okay. When Gandhi was killed, after that Nehru took office, or somewhere at the same time Nehru took office. Since that time, to the, to the present, uh, we have pretty much uh, forgetting of Gandhi's ideas. Okay, now I want to jump more to the present. And we have uh, another phenomenon and that is uh, what's called the Indian diaspora in different parts of the world. I believe you have some people from India here in Wrocław. Not so many, but some. Diaspora. I think in Warszawa are more Indians. Tak, w Warszawie jest dużo więcej Hindusów. 
in England, uh, there's a city called Leicester, which has um, many thousands of Indians. And uh, an interesting phenomenon in the United States, where there are also several hundred thousand uh, Indians, it's the Indian community which has the highest um, income of all minority groups in the United States today. W Stanach Zjednoczonych to właśnie ta mniejszość narodowa, oni mają największy przychód. Now, what does this have to do with their religion? Some might say not very much because they don't observe very much of their religious traditions. I można powiedzieć, jaki to ma związek z ich religią? Cóż, być może niewiele, ponieważ oni tak nie przestrzegają tych zasad. But it comes through in interesting ways. One is with respect to marriage. There are websites uh, where uh, Indians advertise themselves. Um, what do you call them? Match matchmaking websites or something? Matrimonial, yes. And in these matrimonial advertisements, it's interesting to see what kinds of specifications uh, are made. Um, one thing that will be the first thing identified will be the family name. Pierwszą taką rzeczą, która jest tam określona, to jest imię rodowe. So someone may say, you know, I, I am from an Ayer family. So for Indians, that means a lot. They understand. Ayer means South Indian Brahmin. Więc ktoś może powiedzieć, ja jestem z rodziny Ayer. I dla Hindusa to może wiele oznaczać. To znaczy, że on jest z południowych, z południowych Indii, z rodziny brahmińskiej. Or Bania, which means North Indian uh, merchant caste. Very typically, uh, the mm, insurat or what do you call the advertisement will say uh, something about the color, the darkness or lightness of the skin. Usually. It will say light skinned because that is considered better, <laughs> more attractive. And then we'll, uh, typically there will be said this, by the way, if it's a, a, a young woman seeking a partner, the Advertisement is put in by the father, not by the the, the girl. Yes. Um, what else do they have? Oh yes, of course. They will say how much money uh, they are earning and how much money they expect their partner to be earning. Oni też wspominają o tym, ile sami zarabiają pieniędzy i ile pieniędzy powinien zarabiać ich partner. 
they're quite, you know, upfront, we say, about this, quite direct. They will also say uh, whether or not they smoke or drink, whether or not they are vegetarian, because, of course, uh, many higher caste Indians will be vegetarian, others less likely. Um, and uh, in the case of a, of a young lady, it's very uh, likely that it will say that she is mildly religious. And that's what the uh, prospective husband wants. He doesn't want someone who's too religious. At the same time, he does want her to be somewhat religious. She should be pious, but not too religious. Maybe you should sit a little bit more that way. <coughs> or Yes. Uh, so this is one of the sort of manifestations of present-day diaspora Hinduism. I have heard that Bollywood films have now come to Poland. Is that true? You've all seen Bollywood films? Yeah. Truth be told. <laughs> Anyone not seen a Bollywood film yet? You haven't seen yet. Uh, you've been missing out on life. <laughs> uh, so Bollywood has kind of gone around the world. Uh, very recently, the words, uh, the, the film Slumdog Millionaire won, what was it, eight uh, Oscars, I think, Oscar awards. And of course, the, where this takes place is in Mumbai, but the style of the film, I haven't seen it yet, but as I understand, it's kind of a perfect blend of Bollywood and Hollywood. And of course, Bollywood was also inspired by Hollywood. Now, what many call a cultural export from India, which is relevant to Hinduism, has to be mentioned, and that is yoga. Uh, there are now, in every moderately major city of the world, I think, some kind of yoga center, if not several. Uh, 
Anyone here has visited a yoga center here in <laughs> Okay. Uh, I'm sure there's several here in Wrocław as well. Um, yoga is also very popular now in Hong Kong. And also in what people in Hong Kong call mainland China, in the People's Republic of China, which Hong Kong is sort of part of now, but sort of separate. I również w tej śródziemnomorskiej części Chin, czego teraz jest częścią Hong Kong, tam również jest to popularne. Um, that's a topic in itself. So all I can say about that now is that, um, again, the pizza effect is there. Yoga has gone out of India. It's now come back, and it's being sort of reformulated in so many what are called ashramas, especially in northern India, in the, Him in the Himalayan foothills. And many Westerners now go to India, spend some weeks, months studying yoga there. Więc mogę powiedzieć, że ten e, efekt pizzy po prostu działa. E, yoga opuściła e, Indię, e, dotarła e, e, na zachód i powróciła potem do Indii w tej e, nowej formule. I jest e, także praktykują ją e, różni, różne osoby również u, e, na podgór podgórzach Himalajów, w innych miejscach. And uh, the Indian government now officially promotes yoga, at least I know this is going on in China. All right, that's kind of all I want to say about Hinduism, uh, and I'm realizing the time is flying by. It goes twice as fast when you have translation. <laughs> so, I'll try to be more brief on Buddhism. In terms of history, I think it's just something to be aware of how Buddhism began also in India and uh, over centuries spread all the way across Asia, uh, including Japan. And since the 19th century, uh, because of mainly British colonialism in South Asia, uh, Buddhism has also come to the West. I od tego czasu brytyjskiej kolonizacji w południowych Indiach buddyzm również przybył na zachód. Um, in America, in the 1950s, um, there was an interesting phenomenon called uh, the beatniks. W Ameryce w 1950-tych latach było takie ciekawe zjawisko called beatniks. Bitniksi. Yeah? Ginsburg. Yeah, Allen Ginsberg, uh, Gary Snyder, um, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, these are all poets. Ginsberg, who Some others. <laughs> and uh, they started a kind of what might be called uh, mid 20th century romantic movement. 
I oni rozpoczęli taki ruch romantyzmu w środku wieku. Around the same time, uh, some teachers of, of Zen Buddhism from Japan came to America. Jednocześnie do Ameryki przybyli praktykujący nauczyciele buddyzmu Zen. Um, and they started uh, gathering people to lectures and eventually centers were open for practicing Zen Buddhism. I oni zaczęli gromadzić ludzi, dawać wykłady i ostatecznie otworzyli takie centra jogi Zen. One of the most established of these centers is, is the San Francisco Zen Center. Jednym z takich najbardziej dobrze rozwiniętych centrum jest Centrum Zen w San Francisco. Yeah, it's become a kind of icon of alternative culture in America, this particular place. To miejsce stało się taką, takim wizerunkiem, czy ikoną takiej alternatywnej, e, alternatywnego wizerunku. One author in the 1950s, Jack Kerouac, wrote a book called On the Road. Jeden autor, John Kerouac. Jack Kerouac. Kerouac napisał książkę, what was the title? On the Road. Na drodze, tak. And it was a big success. To był ogromny sukces. Uh, later, he wrote another book called The Dharma Bums. Bums of Dharma. What's a bum in Polish? Boom Dharma. Boom Dharma. Boom Dharma. <laughs> yes. <laughs> in which he envisioned um, a sort of homeless... Uh, Buddhist monks wandering around uh, America with rucksack and just um, sort of ministering to the people their vision of sort of free Buddhism. I w tej książce przewidział, że po Ameryce będą podróżowali tacy bezdomni mnisi buddyjscy, którzy będą, którzy będą przekazywali ludziom te koncepcje jogi. Uh, now, in context of globalization, I want to suggest this was all an expression of resistance to commercialization, uh, uh, commodification in all its uh, various forms in America. I chciałem wspomnieć, że w kontekście globalizacji to był właśnie taki przejaw oporu wobec komercjalizacji czego jeszcze? Commercialization and commodification. 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 Yeah. Commodification. 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 Ironia w tym jest taka, że oni to rozprzestrzenili to poprzez, te, poprzez prasy, czyli drukarskie takie systemy, które tak naprawdę były przejawem komercjalizacji. Another book, and I'm forgetting the author's name at the moment, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Kolejna książka, której autora zapomniałem, tytuł to Zen. Sztuka porządania motorcykla. 
Yes. Что коррект? Пожелание мотоцикла. Sorry, his name. Piercing. Thank you. Yes. Piercing. Yes. So you you all know this book. It's been translated into Polish. <laughs> this book was a huge success. Yeah. Um, did you read it? Yeah. Did you like? <laughs> yes. Uh, his book is a sort of travelogue and simultaneously a kind of reflection on um, modernity, technology, how to sort of live with the modern world in a meditative way. O technologii, technology. o modernizacji, yeah. o tym, jak uh, żyć z tym. And of course, the title is Zen and etc., but he doesn't really talk very much about Zen Buddhism as such. Tytuł jest Zen, ale on oczywiście nie mówi zbytnio o tym buddyjskim Zen. Another, um, a different approach, you might say, with respect to Buddhism, which we're all familiar with today, comes uh, through the present, the 14th Dalai Lama. And here I think it's, it's, uh, it's a toss-up. Uh, what is he representing? Is he representing uh, this, uh, which type of, of protectionism uh, is he uh, more in favor of? Is he a kind of universalist, protectionist? Or is he the opposite? Um, he, as you know, he uh, came out of Tibet uh, to escape from the Chinese uh, takeover of, of Tibet. And he has his uh, government, his uh, um, his capital in northern India. And he has become a, a, a world figure. He travels all over the world, uh, speaking about um, sort of humanitarian principles, uh, but he also speaks about Buddhism. Dużo po świecie, a i o czym on tam mówi? On mówi o takich zasadach humanitarystycznych, ale również o, o buddyzmie. So he has become a kind of icon of uh, the protection, the preservation of this ancient Tibetan Buddhist tradition. Więc on stał się taką um, postacią reprezentującą ten protekcjonizm tego, ty tego tybetańskiego buddyzmu. In fact, in fact, he is considered to be Uh, an incarnation of Avalokiteshvara, uh, a bodhisattva of compassion. And this is, um, talk about strange twists of, of tradition and globalization. The Chinese government is now insisting that the next 
Dalai Lama will be selected by the Chinese government. There is a traditional system by which the uh, the incumbent Dalai Lama is selected or identified. And there's a nice film about that called Kundun, uh, which shows how the present Dalai Lama was was found. He, it's understood he's already the Dalai Lama. He just has to be found. So the present Dalai Lama might be said to represent this particularist protectionism. On the other side, he also re- represents so many aspects of universalist protectionism. I ten obecny Dalai Lama, on, można powiedzieć, że on tak podąża za tym jednostkowym protekcjonizmem, czy też uniwersalnym. Um, so is he one, is, the, is he the other, or is he both? He seems to be an icon of uh, something which stands against whatever is happening today, in any case. Więc czy on jest po, po jednej stronie protekcjonizmu, czy po tej drugiej? On wydaje się, że stoi za wszystkim, tak za każdą rzeczą, która ma teraz miejsce. Finally, with regard to Buddhism, I will just mention what is now called engaged Buddhism. I jeszcze mówiąc o buddyzmie, wspomnę o czymś, co nazywamy takim engaged Buddhism. Taki zaangażowany buddysta. Yeah. Because uh, typically Buddhist monks are thought to be disengaged from the world. They live in monasteries and they chant mantras and they meditate and, and they go uh, door to door and they beg alms. That's the typical image. But in recent decades, uh, engaged Buddhists say, no, now it is time to become engaged in the world for higher purposes. And I remember in, uh, dare I say, the late 60s, early 70s, uh, coming in the news about uh, Buddhist monks in Vietnam self-incinerating themselves in protest of uh, American presence uh, in Vietnam. Pamiętam taką wiadomość, która pojawiła się w późnych 60-tych latach, czy też na początku lat 70-tych, Wspominała o tym, że o, o tym, że buddyjscy minisi, oni zaangażowali się w taki protest, że oni byli, że znaleźli się w Wietnamie i tam 
Whoops. <laughs> Battery Tam, went dead. We're getting it <coughs> all together. So um, that was one sort of type of engaged Buddhism. Another um, uh, we've seen in very recent months in uh, Myanmar, formerly called Burma. Myanmar. Burma. Where we've seen on television how Buddhist monks have gone out to uh, have demonstrations and to uh, confront uh, the, the police of the present regime. The present uh, government. And also in Tibet, we've seen that also on television, become very active. I just want to mention one figure who's become very well known in the context of engaged Buddhism is Thich Nhat Hanh, uh, who is a writer extensively published in, I'm sure, also in Polish. Yes. <laughs> Again, I think this uh, phenomenon and these people are representing a resistance to uh, globalization, but in different forms, with different sides to it. Okay, that's my little bit on Buddhism. Now I just want to wrap things up and then maybe someone has a question we can try to discuss. A big topic in some circles in recent years has been human rights. There is uh, a document uh, developed by the United Nations called uh, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And what I want to suggest is that for thinking of globalization and thinking about religion and especially Asian religions, uh, this is an interesting context in which to think about these. One organization based in Canada in recent years developed a universal declaration of human rights um, by the world's religions. It was a response to the, the 
uh, document of the United Nations. And basically what they did was to take each of the, I think it's 33 uh, points of the first document, and they added something to each of these points. Uh, many people have uh, protested this document as not respecting uh, certain religious perspectives. Means the the, fir the United Nations document not respected. Um, so what this document of the religions does, it says. Basically, everyone in the world has a right to dot, 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 fill in the blank, and you know, a right to food, shelter, education, and so on. And then the dark document on religion says, and Everyone in the world has a responsibility to ensure that others have enough to eat, a place to sleep, <laughs> and, and uh, work and uh, protection, on, and so on. Uh, so, that's a whole other topic we can elaborate on, but we're just touching it. I just want to sort of leave you with questions that one could think about in relation to Asian religions, what we've talked about, and globalization. Uh, one thing, you know, what to watch for when we see the news and we see something happening uh, with respect to globalization and some religious tradition. <coughs> one I've suggested is these three sort of themes. One is agency, uh, which we didn't talk so much about. One is acceptance and one is Resistance. And another, I would say, is, has to do with community building. Um, I think it can be argued that as human beings, we need to feel part of community. And one thing that uh, people argue who talk about globalization is the sort of breakdown or co corrosion of community. Mm. 
And so, and so one might see uh, religion as one way, a medium or a, a, a basis by which people are creating community. And then it becomes a question, uh, do we have one community of, you know, one religion here, another of another religion here, and do they have to fight? Some would say, well, that is unfortunately the tendency and therefore the solution is secularization. But others would say, well, what we see today is a reaction to secularization. I can't even say it myself. Secularization uh, by many religious people. Uh, so, how is all of this um, crystallizing as time goes on? Um, that is what we can watch. That is one thing that we can be watching for. Um, and that's... <coughs> oh, one more thing. Uh, another thing we can be aware of, if you're not already, is a, a, a globalizing effort at inter, what some call interreligious or interfaith dialogue. There was a conference in Chicago in 1893 uh, called the uh, Parliament of the World's Religions. After some decades that has been re revived and now every five years in a different city in the world they have that conference and several thousand people come. That's only one of many, many um, initiatives. One is called the United Religions Initiative. In which people uh, in which people of different religious traditions are coming together with uh, the conviction that it is possible to cross the boundaries and to create uh, greater communities based on faith. Another movement, sort of groundswell, I would say, is happening, maybe based in America, but it's ha um, going elsewhere, and that is uh, a, an effort by uh, faith groups, religious groups, to do something about preserving the environment. Uh, 
So as sort of one force of globalization is kind of trashing the environment, <laughs> another effort, another force, which is also uh, crystallizing through, you know, technology and whatever else, uh, is, is working to resist that. Right, so that's um, a sketch in a nutshell about some aspects of what's probably a topic we could have a whole semester course about. Um, I hope you got some idea that's stimulating and maybe someone has a question or... Or a comment. I know it's a warm afternoon, but <laughs> some of you are journalism students, I understand, and some are international something students. Social relations. Okay. Oh, international relations. Oh, okay. <laughs> Good. So, yes, sir. I have a question. It seems that today globalization has its roots in uh, in the West countries, especially in America. It is even called Americanization or McDonaldization. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned that previously uh, the India was also the so the root or source of globalization and it w uh, its culture was spreading in east uh, southeast direction mm. up to the Indonesia. You want to translate so, so far? widać, że współczesna globalizacja ma taki ma swoje źródło w krajach zachodnich, szczególnie w Ameryce, no dlatego nazywana jest nawet e, jest to taka amerykanizacja. E, a tutaj e, właśnie profesor e, wspomniał, że poprzednio Indie były takim źródłem globalizacji, która rozprzestrzeniała się w kierunku południowo-zachodnim aż do Indonezji. So my question is how far it, it was spread because uh, we see that uh, European languages are affected by, by because this is, of course, Indo-European languages. Indo-European. Yeah. That's very similar to the Sanskrit or Indian language. Mm, so yeah. can, can we estimate it was a global mm, culture or how, how base, far it Base in India. Oh. How, how far <coughs> this this uh, Indian globalization was spread. This is my question. Because we see that our, for example, languages European, the majority of European languages are very similar to the Indian Sanskrit language. So my question is: Can we estimate how far globalization in India 
rozprzestrzeniła się na cały świat. First point is I'm not an I'm not an historian of ancient globalization, so <laughs> I, I can't speak very authoritatively. Uh, there's a lot of mm, speculation in this direction. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of speculation about these things. I think uh, <coughs> one thing everyone seems to agree, sort of hardcore historians, is that a lot more interaction, especially through trade, was going on in ancient times than was thought recently. Um, there is uh, it is a favored idea among many Hindus, especially those who identify themselves with Hindu nationalism of one sort or another, that um, India is the cradle of civilization, that basically it was spread all over the world, and so on. And yes, there are uh, bits of evidence uh, for some kind of interchange, uh, if not, yeah, influence um, into uh, Western Europe and South Europe. Especially intriguing is the case of um, Pythagoras, the, before Platon. Uh, Pythagoras is said to have, and no one's been able to prove it, but there is a theory that he went to India and had interaction with Indian philosophers, sages. Pythagoras. <laughs> I mentioned Plato, but Pythagoras. And there's uh, a very well-known book uh, about Apollonius of Tiana. He apparently did go to India, after which he traveled around the Mediterranean and he seems to have had interesting encounters in India. Apollonius of Tiana. And um, our present day science of philology uh, was born when uh, British, especially uh, scholars, discovered the connections between Sanskrit, Latin, Greek, and um, Celtic languages. Mm -hmm. 
właśnie kiedy brytyjscy naukowcy oni odkryli takie powiązania pomiędzy sanskrytem, językiem greckim, łaciną i językiem celtyckim. Big topic. <laughs> yes. Anything else? So, uh, we have another event uh, next week, I believe. Yes. Oh, this week on Saturday. Right. And what is our topic? Something a bit different, right? W sobotę zapraszamy na e, następny wykład profesora e, o godzinie 15.30, to nie w tej sali, w 03, to jest e, tam piętro niżej, powiedzmy. E, tematem jest, e, temat brzmi 33 miliony bogów oh, right, right, right. Okay. w monoteistycznych religiach, e, tradycjach hinduistycznych. Yes, we'll talk about all 33 million gods. So, yes, you're all welcome to come for that as well. So that's it. Dziękuję bardzo. And hope to see you again. Mam nadzieję, że jeszcze się zobaczymy.